0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. I talked a bit about that buzz you get from coffee or tea today. You know, if you did, as I mentioned, you're you're using a plant-based chemical called caffeine. And, of course, it it alters your consciousness. Michael Pollan has written a lot about caffeine and a couple of other mind-altering drugs in his new book. And if you'd like to join our conversation... You can give us a call, 844 724 8255 844 or tweet us at SciFry. Michael Pollan is a journalist and author of This Is Your Mind on Plants. Welcome back to Science Friday, Michael.
1: Thank you, Ira. Very good to be here. 20 years seems like yesterday. I know. I was was shocked when you said that. (laughs) Ten years. Wow. I wonder what we were talking about in 1991.
0: I I know what we were talking about. In fact, uh, I mean, we were talking about you growing marijuana in your backyard in Connecticut. Do you remember that? (laughs)
1: Things haven't changed. That much. <laughs> I, no, my interest in, in psychoactive plants is longstanding. I'm really glad that habit is now legal, at least where I live.
0: Well, I, I'm seeing a trend in your writing going back those years. You used to write mainly about food and diet, and now your last two books, How to Change Your Mind, and this last one, Your Mind on Plants, takes a whole different track. Why is that?
1: Well, the two the two subjects don't seem quite as diametrically opposed to me as they do to perhaps to some listeners or readers. My my basic underlying fascination in writing is writing about our relationship to plants and all the different things we use them for and all the ways they use us. And so, if you're focused on that, and it was a focus I developed as a gardener, actually, when I was uh, you know quite young. Um, you're going to look at food because food is probably the most important way we use plants and they use us and so I wrote a series of books as you know about that and uh, our relationship to things like corn Um, but you know this there's this other very curious use to which we put plants and that is to change consciousness and that's always struck me as a fascinating human habit you know why do we have it what is it good for isn't it dangerous Um, you would think that the desire to change consciousness, which appears to be universal across cultures, there was only one culture when they surveyed a bunch of them in the '70s that did not have a consciousness-changing plant, and that was the Inuit in Greenland. So the only reason was nothing good grew where they lived. Um, so why do we have this universal desire? And I've been I've been chewing on that one for quite a while.
0: Good, good way to put it. Um, you, you chose three plant-based compounds. Tell us about why you chose what they are and why you chose those three above anything
1: else. Sure, I mean there were a lot to choose from, uh, but I wanted one that was a, a stimulant Uh, And that was caffeine produced by coffee and tea and a couple other plants. I wanted one that was a depressant. And for that, I had opium uh, produced by the opium poppy. And I wanted a psychedelic. Um, These are basically the three major categories of psychoactive drugs. You know, uppers, downers, and what I think of as outers, Um, the psychedelic being the outer. And for that, I chose mescaline, which is produced by a couple different cacti.
0: Mm-hmm. And does every culture have this kind of relationship with some plant or other?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it just appears to be this universal human desire, and uh, we there are very few examples of of tradition of cultures that don't use some plant this way. Some of them are, you know, totally innocuous uh, things like caffeine. Nobody thinks twice about the fact that we're all ninety percent of us on the planet are using the psychoactive drug every day. Um, And then some are kind of obscure and very specific to individual cultures. But it's a human given. We're just, there's something about us that just isn't satisfied with everyday normal consciousness. And we seek, and we go to great lengths and risks to vary it in in different ways. You know, whether it's the, the kind of sharpening of focus and the energy lift we get from caffeine, or the desire to transcend our everyday lives, ourselves, with something like a psychedelic. Which, you know, those two, we think of psychedelics as a very modern phenomenon, yeah, a product, yeah. product of the 60s. But um, my research found that the use of mescaline in, by indigenous peoples in the Americas goes back at least 6,000 years. Um, and, and there's evidence for ancient psychedelic use in many different cultures, uh, usually as a sacrament or to heal or for divination, to, to you know, see what's gonna happen in the future. So this is a very old and deeply ingrained habit that we have um, and you know, so what is it good for is, a, is an interesting question. I mean, one thing we use psychoactives for, of course, is to, is to decrease pain. Um, And and opium, of course, is the classic example. And you would see why that would be very adaptive, to to have some sort of substance that relieved pain. Um, Because for most of history, what was medicine about except relieving pain? There were not a lot of cures on offer. Um, So opium has played a a critical role, and that too has been used for thousands of years. But then we use drugs that don't uh, eliminate pain, that do other weirder things. And some help us work some help us uh, relieve boredom, and some help us have experiences of another world. Um, The way the psychedelics, you know, which may have been used in early religion, um, may be responsible for some of the visions of an afterlife, of of a underworld, of a, of a, a, just another dimension mm. that underlies so many different religions, and it may be, you know, we may have to credit that, that, those visions to uh, psychedelic substances.
0: And, and you tried to get
1: into that world, didn't you? I did, I was very interested in mescaline. Um, it's, it's kind of the orphan psychedelic. When I wrote How to Change Your Mind a couple years ago, uh, you know, I focused on psilocybin, which is being used a lot in research. Uh, And I talked a lot about the history of LSD, but mescaline was, you know, really the first psychedelic to be discovered in the West. Um, You know, William James fooled around with it uh, apparently, and and other scientists around around the turn of the last century, around 1900. And it was the first psychedelic to be isolated and synthesized, and then it disappears. Oh, it's the one Aldous Huxley wrote about too, in Doors of Perception, which is, you know, one of the most beautiful books about transcendental experience that's been written. And he had a mescaline trip in the 50s that really changed his life. Um, but then it disappeared. And I was trying to figure out why. And um, one reason is that LSD, is, which is similar in its effects, is easier to find. And, and, um, uh, and, and you use much less of it. I mean, doses of LSD are, are measured in micrograms, millionths of a gram. And of course, when you're in a a legal drug market, less is more, right? The right. lighter and smaller the drug, the 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 less likely you are to get caught. Whereas mescaline, you you have to take something like 400 milligrams, so it's like two fat capsules. But what I was the other reason I was interested in mescaline, though, is that it has been used continuously by uh, Native Americans um, and extensively in the last hundred years um, in what is called the Native American Church which is a trans-tribal church of, of uh, Native Americans who have the legal right since 1994 to use mescaline. And they do it in the form of peyote, which is a, a very inconspicuous, beautiful, low-lying, bluish-green uh, cactus that grows only in a small area uh, along the Rio Grande, on both sides of the Rio Grande. And I was very curious to find my way into that subculture because— it proposes a very different approach to psychedelics. You know, we we kind of think of psychedelics as being very disruptive to society and very radical. Mm -hmm. Um, And and in some ways it was in the 60s. Um, But in the Native American church, the role of peyote has been to promote social cohesion, community building, community preservation under the threat of, you know, colonialism. Uh, and um, occupation and um, it's a very it's a profoundly conservative drug in that context and has done a lot to preserve I- uh, Indian identity in America mm-hmm. yeah. as well as healing it's, it's used to treat alcoholism and, and uh, uh, social problems in the community and it's like 250,000 people strong uh, it's a major church in America and, um, and it proposes a very different use of of drugs we, we, we regard as, you know, dangerous and illicit. Mm-hmm.
0: Our number 844-724-8255. Let's uh, go to the phones if you have a, a question for Michael Pollan that uh, you would like to ask him. Let me, let's go to, let's go to Portland. Hi, welcome Sean. Oh, hey, yeah, so um, I had a question on what the best way to fight the stigma that you were talking about, the, you know, the illicit drugs that we consider illicit. I mean. We drink coffee to wake up, we take melatonin to go to sleep, but I can't smoke a joint and then ha- operate heavy equipment a month later. So, what's the best way to fight that stigma?
1: Well, you people in Oregon are doing it. You know, you passed two pieces of legislation in the last uh, election that are profoundly um, uh, going to change, I think, the whole drug landscape. The one I'm particularly interested in is a measure that will legalize um, psilocybin, Um, not just decriminalize the drug, but actually obligates the state, State Department of Health, to um, uh, train and license guides, train facilitators and train and license growers of psilocybin so that people may have in a safe and unstigmatized way a psilocybin experience, whether they are have a mental illness diagnosis, or or just want to do it for spiritual development. I think that what's destigmatizing psychedelics is, uh, you know, the voters speaking out um, that they think the drug war is is uh, you know a dead end, and they want to see it end. Um, but also the research that's being done. You know, we have had an incredible string of papers coming out. Uh, about the value of both psilocybin and MDMA, also known as ecstasy, in treating mental health problems, which are you know epidemic right now. And um, nothing has done more, I think, to change the image of these substances than, these, than this research. Um, and it's changing the image of things like ecstasy, which was a rave drug, right, a counterculture rave drug, or psilocybin, which was a counterculture psychedelic, to think of them as medicines, as productive, um, tools for treating some of the most serious problems we fi- face. The other thing that I think affects this stigmatization frankly is the um, fact that many people are you know, in the closet about their own use of these substances. It, it was either embarrassing or reputationally risky to write about having psychedelic experiences and, um, and the more people come out and talk about it, which is happening, I mean you know uh, Will Smith apparently writes about this in his book and um, there are a great many celebrities have recently talked about the value of their ayahuasca experiences or other psychedelic experiences. So I think we're on the way to normalizing the use of these substances. And, um, and I think that's a healthy thing. You point out in your book the irony
0: is that the legal drugs are killing more people than the illicit drugs.
1: Yeah, well, you know, what's really striking, I so I wrote a chapter in the book about uh, opium and my experience growing opium poppies and trying to make an opium tea from it, or laudanum, which is uh, opium poppies dissolved in alcohol. And uh, early, in the 90s when I was writing about this and having this experience, it was at the height of the drug war and they were cracking down on gardeners, In this is the summer of 96, who were making this mild narcotic tea that's like, served at funerals in the Middle East and, you know, relieves back pain and things like that. Um, and while the DEA was cracking down on that practice, uh, and I got kind of caught up in that um, skirmish in the drug war back then, um, <laughs> Purdue Pharma was introducing oxycotton this very same <laughs> summer. Um, and that introduction and the way that drug was marketed and the way they lied about, uh, about its addictiveness and side effects is what gave us uh, the opioid crisis, which last year killed a hundred thousand people. Um, this is, you know, this was a, a crisis begun by the legal prescription of drugs, um, not by the illicit use. And I actually think that irony, if we can call it that, is part of what is, you know, cutting the legs out from under the drug war, um, while we were putting in so many billions of dollars to, you know defeat illegal drug use we were promoting legal drug use in a way that that has been the biggest public Mm -hmm. health crisis of the last 20 or 30 years
0: okay let me break in and say this is science friday from wnyc studios talking with michael pollan author of this is your mind on drugs a lot of people with questions for you michael i'm sure you would understand that let's go to jordan in santa cruz hi jordan
1: hi there um thanks for being here um Michael, I'm a big fan of yours. You know, you write a lot about um, how interesting it is that something like 90% of adults use caffeine, the mind-altering
0: substance from plants on a daily basis, and how it fuels the economy of capitalism. So I'm curious if there's any other substances in your research that you could imagine people using on a more regular basis similar to caffeine, even if it's,
1: it's kind of out there to think of at the moment, and how it might change how we work, how we learn, or even thinking about your book, A Place of Our Own, our built environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Well, you know, we do use other drugs on a daily basis they're not exactly plant drugs Uh, alcohol comes to mind Uh, but that's the product of course of a yeast um, uh, which ferments the plant sugars to make alcohol and um, so that's one Um, in other parts of the country a a really interesting example is uh, coca Um, we're familiar with the product of the coca plant through uh, through cocaine which is um, you know a powerful drug and people really get into trouble on cocaine Um, uh, but the way it's used in South America is much more like coffee Um, it's chewed you know sometimes all through the day by people gives them this stimulant this kind of mild stimulation that also like caffeine, sharpens focus, increases endurance, also helps with altitude sickness. And it's used apparently, from what I read, um, you know, without much problem of abuse. Um, and that there's something about the mild dose you get from consuming it that way. There's a, there's, once you refine drugs, and this, and this goes for the opiates too. Uh, and turn them into white powder drugs. You're intensifying them, and it's, it's for many of these drugs. That's when you run into issues with uh, of de- of dependence and drug abuse of various kinds. Um, but coca, which Andrew Weil has written about, a- and Wade Davis, uh, both of whom you know Andrew Weil we know as a doctor, but he's also an ethnobotanist, and Wade Davis, who's a famous ethnobotanist, th- th- they make a very strong case for you know that we should have coca chewing gum. Um, and that this would be a, you know, a healthy thing, and there doesn't appear to be a lot of health risks associated with it. I can't evaluate those claims, but I have a lot of respect for them as authorities. So that would be another example of a, of a plant drug that could be folded into society without a whole lot of disruption and possibly with some you know positive benefits.
0: Yeah, because you point out that people are now doing the experiments they stopped doing. Like back in the yeah. '60s, and they're, they're, they've picked them up again. Let, let well, me get more. Lost, e-
1: yeah. yeah, we've you know we've lost 30 years of research, yeah. and, and the other the other one I'd throw out there, and again, there's not enough research on this yet to say, is microdosing uh, psychedelics, um, which we can talk about. But that would be a very routine, everyday use of a sub perceptual. Amount of a substance like LSD or -hmm. psilocybin, which many people believe has positive effects on their mental health and on their productivity and creativity. I have no idea if that's true or not, but uh, the claims are out there and need to be tested.
0: All right. We'll talk more about that after the break. We have to go to a break. We're talking with Michael Pollan, author of This Is Your Mind on Plants, our number, 844-724-8255. Lots of time to talk about it. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're talking this hour with Michael Pollan about his book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, The Way Humans Interact with the Caffeine, Mescaline, and Opium. And you can join our conversation, 844-724-8255, 844 SciTalk. Uh, lots of people on the phone. Before I get to the phone calls, I, I-, I saw you do uh, a converse- have a conversation where you talked about why people are so attracted to addictive drugs like opioids and especially heroin, and you talked about the lab animal experiments with rats that I thought was just fascinating. Could you talk about that again?
1: Yeah, uh, this was fascinating to learn about. Um, You know, I think a lot of us uh, have gotten our, our ideas about addiction and drugs from these lab experiments done with rats and mice. And in the classic experiment, they hook a, a rat up to a, 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 a setup where they can press a lever and uh, administer the drug under review, say let's say heroin or uh, or cocaine to their bloodstream, or with another lever they can administer sugar water, sucrose. And um, uh, and what most lab ab- animals will do faced with a drug like that is press the lever with for the drug over and over and over again to the point of addiction and indeed even death in the case of cocaine. Um, And this has led to the general belief that it is simply exposure to these substances that leads to addiction, that it is a strictly biological process. Um, But in the 70s, there was a a scientist in Canada uh, whose name I believe is Bruce Alexander who who came to doubt this idea, and um, uh, and he was curious to know whether the condition in which the rats were living might have affected their likelihood of becoming addicted or using drugs. So he set up something he called the rat park, and this was a, a very enriched uh, cage, much larger, with uh, you know uh, natural things in it, you know plants and other rats to play with and toys. Uh, and good food, and then he set up, and he gave them the choice between the drug and food, and he found that while the rats did still try the drug, whether it was cocaine or heroin or morphine, um, they used very little of it. Uh, in one case, I think it was five milligrams a day instead of 25 milligrams a day. And what that suggests is your likelihood of addiction, if you're a rat anyway, had to do as much with the condition of your cage as with the biochemistry. And what it suggested to a lot of people is that we need to look at the environment in which people uh, get addicted. Um, another great example of this uh, also came out of the 70s and that came at the end of the, the Vietnam War. In country, something like 20% of American troops were using heroin regularly. There was a lot of worry that when these millions of addicts came back, or or thousands of addicts rather, came back to the streets of the US, we'd have a tremendous heroin addiction problem. But when the soldiers got back, uh, 95% of them were able to simply stop using heroin uh, without any treatment, without much problem at all uh and only 5% continued and that suggested too that it was the environment the conditions in which people were living that um was, was determining whether they became addicted or not. Um, so I think we have to keep our eye on this. And it, it certainly jibes with, the. if you look at the geography of the opioid crisis or the meth crisis, um, these are the poorest uh, parts of America, places where, where prospects for the future are, have, have been shrinking and disappearing, um, places with lots of other problems. And, and it, it encourages us, I think, to look at addiction as a symptom uh, rather than a cause of, of social problems. And um, and that argues for a whole other way of approaching mm-hmm.
0: it. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Houston. An anonymous caller. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Uh, hello. hello. This Hi, is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's me. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so first off, uh, Ms. and I wanted to say thank you. Your book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, was integral in my own journey into psychedelics and uh solving some issues with depression and anxiety, and I really appreciate it. My other, my real question, though, was the linkage between, if you plan to write any more about the linkage between sort of the physiology of the body and the mind, uh, I was really interested, particularly in your last book, in the, in the last third chapter about the neuropsychology of it, and uh, I'd also like to hear your thoughts on ketamine and I will hang up and listen.
1: All right, thanks for your call. Well, thanks for your question, and thanks for sharing your story. I appreciate that. Um, Well, I'll start with ketamine. Ketamine is is not technically a psychedelic. It is a legal anesthetic, um, which at lower than the dose that puts you out, which is how it's used in emergency rooms, um, has psychedelic effects, um, or so people report and it has been approved for use in treating depression and it's showing some efficacy there. Um, The effects don't seem to last that long but they can be critical in getting someone out of, say, a suicidal episode. Um, So ketamine is, is is an interesting substance because it's legal, because ketamine clinics are being built around the country that I think will transition into becoming psilocybin or MDMA clinics when those two drugs are approved by the FDA, which is only a few years away. So people are kind of practicing, how would you create safe spaces in which to um, administer these drugs? Uh, And the ketamine industry is really pioneering that, I think, in various ways. Um, On the other issue, I am, I continue to be very interested in what psychedelics may have to teach us about consciousness. Um, It's hard not to have a psychedelic experience, and and I've had several in the course of my research, um, where you don't begin to think hard about consciousness, and and what a strange phenomenon it is, and and why do we have it, and is it necessary, and how is it that brains produce uh, the experience of red or or the you know the sorts the sorts of subjective first-person experiences we have, um, it's amazing how little we know about this and how primitive mm-hmm. the science of consciousness is. Uh, in some ways, the poets and writers are ahead of the scientists. I think, in, in, at least in terms of. Uh, describing it well, um, but yeah, I'm I'm very interested. I'm sure I'll be writing about it again in one way or another. Um, will I figure it out? I, I think that's much less likely.
0: Melissa in Portlandia, hi, welcome to Science Friday. You're next up. Hi, Melissa.
2: Hi. Hi there. Sorry,
0: that's okay. Go so- ahead.
2: My question is, uh, currently if I'm taking, say, an herbal supplement like lion's mane, I go to my pharmacist, I go to my doctor and I ask them, is this going to interact with the current medication that I'm taking? And they have no idea. Um, I think that part of that is that there isn't enough research on, say, lion's mane itself that uh, is widely available for doctors and pharmacists to be confident about uh, suggesting whether that's okay or not for you to be taking along with any other medication. Um, so my question is for you, when do you think that the research would be available and are we going in that direction in terms of psilocybin or any of the other um, plans that you've been talking about and written about uh, that it where well, you can have a mm-hmm. conversation with your doctor and be confident that they have enough information and that you know, as a patient who might be taking lots of other medicines, um, that you would be okay to go ahead and yeah. uh take take that along with um with these other supplements.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. Um The issue of supplements is a little different than the issue of psilocybin. Um, You know, supplements are very lightly regulated in this country, so you don't have to do much research on them, uh, if any, to introduce them. And that's why your doctor doesn't really know about the uh, interaction of, um, say, lion's mane, which is a a kind of mushroom, uh, and a supplement that, you know, many doctors actually think has value. I know I had a conversation with my doctor, and he, and he indicated that the research on lion's mane was encouraging. But it's not the kind of research that gets a drug approved by the FDA. And um, until you've gone through that process, which is quite an elaborate and an expensive process, where you look at things like drug interaction, where you look at um, safety as well as efficacy. We're not gonna know the answer to that question um, in any kind mm-hmm. of you know, yeah. persuasive way. Psilocybin is not going through, though, the supplement uh, process of regulation. It is going through the FDA drug approval process. So they are actually looking at those questions, among others. Uh, in fact, a study just came out last week suggesting there's a general belief that if, if you're on an SSRI antidepressant A psychedelic treatment like psilocybin won't work very well because uh, both use the same receptors serotonin receptors in the brain but this study came out that suggested that may not be true and that people on SSRIs or at least some of them should be eligible to take psilocybin. Um, So, whether that is, you know, going to be the conventional wisdom or not remains to be seen, but these are questions that are being looked at in the case of psilocybin, and if it is approved as a drug, doctors, I think, should have the information they need to make a judgment whether it's safe for you to take it or not.
0: We've we've been talking about the, the people involved in the people plant relationship. Yeah. But what's in it for the plants? I mean, did they they evolve in the plants for
1: some reason or is it a happy coincidence that whatever? Well, it's a little bit of both. What's really interesting about most of these psychoactive plant substances is that they were originally evolved as defense chemicals. Um, They are uh, chemicals that plants produce to keep from being eaten. and, uh, and they are toxic, like most drugs, in, in, the, in, the, you know, in a high dose. Um, and of course, a, a, a toxic dose for an insect is different than a toxic dose for people. But what's really cool about what happened here is that plants in general, the ones that produce these psychoactive defense chemicals, have figured out, and I say that you know, advisedly, there's no intention involved, that simply killing your pest with a highly lethal chemical is not a great strategy for defense. Because as we learned with toxic pesticides, you then select for resistant members of the pest population really quickly. And so we found that various pesticides stop working after a while. But if your chemical defense is doing something different, which is simply ruining the appetite of your pest, which most of these psychoactive chemicals do. You are not hungry when you take these chemicals. Um, Or simply confuse the pest, Um, you know, make it uh, lose contact with reality. Um, That's a much better strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that may be why. And I'm being somewhat speculative here. I don't think there's any research to prove this particular point but that may be why that uh, these defense chemicals are at certain doses psychoactive. Mm -hmm. They're meant to mess with the mind of predators. Now, what's cool about plants is that they can go from producing a chemical, which they invented, which is incredible in and of itself, these complicated molecules that have, you know, that just so happen to unlock human consciousness, um, that they can switch from having produced them as defenses to essentially producing them as attractants. Um, and caffeine is a great example of that. Let me let me so stop you,
0: but let me go yeah. for the break because I want I don't. This is a great story, so let me remind everybody that this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking with Michael Pollan, author of the book "This Is Your Mind on Plants." Yeah, I, I, this is the next question I was going to ask you about the caffeine bee relationship. Yeah. Was that the one you're going to talk
1: about? Exactly. So that's a fantastic example. So caffeine was originally produced, t- it appears, to, pr- to poison uh, insects that want to eat um coffee plants um when it was discovered though that we love caffeine humans love caffeine it became a a strategy for evolutionary success for the coffee plant and we spread coffee and tea around the world but the plant also figured out um that if they a certain group of plants put produce caffeine in their nectar now that's really weird because if it's a defense chemical why would you put it in nectar, which is meant to attract insects? Right. Well, some species, citrus species in particular, figured out that a little bit of caffeine gave a buzz to bees. Okay. and
0: Very, um, very and well
1: a, done, Michael. Very well. And attract—actually, we don't actually know if they have any feeling about it, but it does have the effect of attracting them. Mm-hmm. And the bees that get caffeine—and these tests have been done just in the last few years— Uh, return more reliably to the plants that gave it to them. Remember where those plants are and essentially become more, and this is in the words of one of the researchers, more faithful pollinators. So in effect, these plants are using caffeine the way we do, um, which is to say to make us into better workers.
0: Does that mean they have the same like receptors in the bee brain? That we would have? Probably, would a break?
1: lot of these things are preserved. I don't know for a fact, um, but um, we have a receptor, adenosine, uh, which is a receptor in the brain that caffeine fits, can unlock. It's, it's supposed yeah. to yeah. Um, you know, take this chemical that helps us get tired over the course of the day. Adenosine levels rise, we get sleepier, sleep pressure increases, and we go to sleep. But if the caffeine blocks that receptor, uh, we're wide awake. And uh, it stops that action from happening. Whether it's working the same way in the B brain, I don't think has yet been determined.
0: I only have about 30 seconds to a minute, but you did the ultimate for your book. You gave up
1: caffeine for a few months, right? And you survived to tell about it. Yeah, that was one of the harder things I've done. You know, I, I like to practice immersion journalism. And as you know, in, in uh, my writing about psychedelics, I've, I've tried mescaline. I've tried psilocybin and, and um, uh, just to see what it was like and to write about it from inside. Um, but I also felt I had to do the same thing with caffeine. But that involved giving it up since I was already pretty well addicted. And I had three months without caffeine. And I have to say... It taught me very quickly how dependent I am on caffeine, but not only that, how being caffeinated is now normal everyday consciousness for me. Um, and I don't feel myself without it, which is an amazing statement that I need this plant chemical to feel myself. It's, uh, but there it is.
0: Yeah, and in this great section in your book of, that you write about the the rise of modern civilization depended on caffeine and our ability to change our work hours.
1: Well, caffeine had a lot to do with the rise of uh, the Industrial Revolution and capitalism because if you think about it, before caffeine, the main drug that people used every day was alcohol because alcohol was safer than water. And, you know, you can't operate heavy machinery safely on alcohol. And if you're going to work the long hours and night shifts, you can't have a night shift without mm. caffeine.
0: It's all, like, it's you all in your book. I have to cut you off because there's so much <laughs> to talk about and so much in your book, Michael. Thank you for taking time to be with
1: us today. Uh, my pleasure, Ira. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Michael Pollan, author of This Is Your Mind on Plants, published by Penguin. great It's a great read. Now here's Daniel Peterschmidt with some of the folks who made this program possible. Thanks, Ira. Jennifer Fennec is our Director of Institutional Giving. Ariel Zitch is our Education Director. Beth Ramy is our Controller. Nadia Ortelt is our Chief Content Officer. And I'm digital producer Daniel Peterschmidt. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Daniel. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. And of course, we had help this hour from audio engineers Lisa Gosselin and Kevin Wolf. And if you missed any part of the program, you can subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speakers to play Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato. In New York.